Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of Can We Still Be Friends? This is a recording of a live virtual event that Ryan and I did for uh, Wakanda Area Library, which is a public library around us here in the Chicago burbs. In this event, we were asked to recommend some titles for the library streaming video platforms Hoopla and Canopy. So uh, that's what you're about to hear is uh, Ryan and I kind of ping-ponging back and forth and giving some recommendations uh, for some hidden gems or some of our favorite movies that happen to be on these platforms. So we hope you enjoy this more raw and uncut version of Can We Still Be Friends? Yeah, if you don't know, check with your local library to see if you have access to Hoopla and or Canopy. A lot of these movies we talk about are also available on other streaming services you may or may not uh, subscribe to. So we want to once again thank Wakanda Area Library for having us. Uh, We had a blast putting this together and um, giving the presentation. Uh, Enjoy this little episode and we will be back shortly with our uh, next official episode of Can We Still Be Friends? for being here. Um, we are really grateful that the Wakanda Public Library has asked us to be here. Um, so we hope you uh, find some movies that you're able to take away from this night um, and find uh, Hoopla and Canopy as good alternatives to other streaming sites. Um, so first, a, a little bit about us. My name is Ryan Ebling. I am an English teacher at Libertyville High School. Um, I teach uh, a class called Philosophy and Film, um, which is a really fun um, class to be able to talk about movies with kids and talk about philosophy. Um, Also, I I did my student teaching at Wakanda High School, so I I took a couple field trips to Wakanda Public Library while I was there, so I'm very familiar with uh, the library there. Um, And Nate Goss is with me. He's a librarian uh, at Cook Memorial Public Library. Um, He also co-hosts the Cinema Club there, which is a really great time. And we, together, we host a podcast called Can We Still Be Friends that we started in uh, 2014. And that picture is from about 2014. And we need to update our pictures because uh, we both have uh, aged significantly and have a couple kids now to our our families. Uh, We look a a lot lot more worn, I think, than we did back then. More gray hairs, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so today we wanted just to really focus on some of the library services and streaming platforms that you have freely available to you as a Wakanda library cardholder. The two we're gonna be focusing on is Hoopla and Canopy. Uh, These are services that are, um, all you need is your library card number um, and a valid email address. And with those, with Hoopla, you can check out up to 10 titles per month. And Hoopla isn't just movies, actually. It's also filled with um, ebooks, uh, music, and, um, you know, movies, are, uh, movies and audiobooks as well. So movies are just a little part of that. Uh, Canopy is a little bit more focused on cinema, on movies, um, but it's got a great collection. Actually, both these services have amazing collections. Um, and with Canopy, with your Wakanda card, you can check out up to 15 titles per month. So you've got um, a, a lot available to you uh, as far as streaming content goes. And I think our, our, our goal for the evening 
is really just to kind of help with that situation you might find yourself in these days where streaming is widely available. And you probably even, you may have streaming services beyond this, such as, you know, Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO Max. It seems like the services grow more daily. Um, and then you get to the point where you're uh, sitting there, maybe on a Friday night with the family or your loved one, and you're sitting there and you're just saying like, well, what should we watch? You know, you've got all this content at your fingertips and you're still sitting there just kind of, you know, wandering, wandering through the wilderness of streaming. Uh, and so what we want to do is take these library services, because these are services that you all at, at, at this um, event have access to. And just kind of highlight a few titles that uh, we've seen that have meant a lot to us personally, uh, that maybe you haven't heard about, but um, that we really think uh, a lot of people or everyone would enjoy. So um, this is how we're going to break it down. Uh, basically, what we're going to do is we've broken it down into genres. So we're going to talk about comedies, documentaries, uh, romance movies, uh, horror or suspense thriller movies. Uh, and then end it with uh, with dramas. And what we're going to do is uh, Ryan's going to pick his title. I've got my title. We'll talk about it quickly. And then we have what we're calling a consensus pick, which is something that we both love. It's also probably um, a much more popular film, or at least one that most people have heard of. But it's kind of like, oh, I didn't know Hoopla and Canopy had that available. And I can watch it anytime. So sort of one of those like, oh, that's cool uh, that, um, that, that, that these are available on Hoopla and Canopy. And then at the end, we will open it up for some questions, or maybe you have some titles that you've loved in Hoopla and Canopy and that you'd want to share with the others in the group. Um, I did see something in the chat about whether these are available on Roku. And yes, Canopy and Hoopla are both available with the Roku device. In fact, uh, both of these streaming platforms are uh, extremely compatible with a lot of the different streaming devices that are out there. Pretty much whatever you're using, you can probably get Hoopla and Canopy. And even if you don't have uh, like a streaming device or a smart TV, you can get these even on your smartphone or uh, they, they both have um, browser versions that you can watch on a laptop or computer. Uh, so yeah, why don't we go ahead and uh, let's, let's jump in. Yeah, let's get started with comedies. Um, so my pick is a movie called Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which hear me out. I know that looks a little bit intense. <laughs> uh, and Nate's going to be talking about the life aquatic after uh, first. <laughs> yeah, so my pick is Life Aquatic. Now, this is a Wes Anderson movie. If you're not familiar with who Wes Anderson is, uh, you might be familiar with some of the titles he's done. He did like Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore. More recently, he did Grand Budapest Hotel. He's done even some sort of, um, you know, animation, stop animation type stuff with Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, his stuff is always filled with that kind of uh, that, that whimsy, that imagination. But this title, uh, Life Aquatic, came out in 2004. It was written and directed by Wes Anderson, but also written by Noah Baumbach, uh, who has sort of made a name himself as a filmmaker, doing movies like Squid and the Whale, Francis Ha, uh, Wedding Story. And um, so they teamed up to write this, uh, this movie kind of after Wes Anderson had just finished the success of Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. And um, as you know, from, if you've seen either of those movies, um, he, he does collaborate quite a bit with Bill Murray, but this one, uh, Bill Murray is kind of the star. And uh, if you didn't think Wes Anderson was shooting big enough, he decided to go for a Moby Dick-like plot uh, where Bill Murray plays an oceanographer named Steve Zissou, uh, who is trying to exact revenge on a mythical jaguar shark that has killed his partner. So he rallies together this crew that includes uh, his estranged wife, a journalist, and someone who claims to be his son. Um, but you've, you know, 
you've got to look at this cast. Aside from just Bill Murray alone, you've got Owen Wilson, Kate Blanchett, Angelica Houston, Willem Dafoe, and Jeff Goldblum. I mean, you can't you can't beat that cast really. Um, like a lot of Wes Anderson, it's got that sort of characteristically eclectic soundtrack, and this time it features Brazilian guitarist and songwriter Sue George singing David Bowie songs in Portuguese. So if that even that wasn't enough, you've got that as well. But this movie is really kind of signature Anderson in every way. It's a really touching homage to Jacques, homage to Jacques Cousteau. It's got his sort of stop motion animation that you would see him really fine tune in Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's got sort of the dioramas that he loves to use to tour through things, in this case, his ship. A sort of 60s, 70s nostalgia vibe. It's full of that whimsy and it's actually just really funny. And the reason I mention this as a hidden gem is because, you know, it got mixed reviews on its release. It was a box office flop. Um, but over time, especially if you're a Wes Anderson fan, I find that so many Wes Anderson fans just have a really loving affection for this movie. It's pretty much become a bona fide cult classic at this point. So um, I really do think this is also probably both Wes Anderson and Bill Murray at their most playful together. So that's my pick, The Life Aquatic. Yeah. And uh, speaking of cult classics, this this movie is absolutely, uh, I think, underseen. Um, <laughs> it's directed by Eli Craig, who I think remains an unknown director, starring Tyler Labine and Alan Tudyk. You might recognize him from uh, things like Firefly. And he he pops up here and there as kind of one of those actors that you're, you're like, oh, that guy, he's uh, in something else. And so this is a horror comedy, but it's much heavier on the comedy than it is on the horror. Um, and I just love the um, the plot of this movie. It's it it's a group of preppy college kids spend a weekend vacation up at a cabin in the woods, which that's a tired horror cliche. They're really creeped out by the hillbillies in this dilapidated cabin across the lake, played by Alan Tudyk and Tyler Labine. But the way that Tucker and Dale versus Evil updates the that old cliche of college kids being terrorized by creepy locals is that Alan Tudyk and Tyler Labine are Tucker and Dale and they're just there at their fixer upper cabin to have a good time and they're really sweet guys but the preppy college kids just assume that they're out to get them because they've seen too many horror movies themselves and so the college kids keep thinking that Tucker and Dale are are are, are kind of hunting them but really they're just out fishing or they're out drinking beer by the lake or something. And so the college kids decide to attack Tucker and Dale, but they're so bad at it. The college kids ends up hurting themselves, which makes the other college kids think that Tucker and Dale are attacking them back. Um, and it just is, it gets more and more crazy as Tucker and Dale just get more and more befuddled as why these college kids are so clumsy and hurting themselves all the time. So, um, Again, there there are horror elements of it and a little bit a little bit gory at times, but people you should watch it for the the relationship between Tucker and Dale. It is so pure and so funny um, the way they care for each other, and uh, it's also a good movie that's just scary enough to be exciting, but it's funny enough that you'll be able to sleep at night as well. Um, so that was that's Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, and that brings us to our consensus pick, which is very different from, I think, both of those movies. Um, and that is Some Like It Hot, um, directed by Billy Wilder and starring Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon. Um, 
if you uh, if you haven't seen this one, this is definitely one to catch up on. Um, Nate, what do you what are your thoughts on this movie? Well, I mean, this is one that like, yeah, if you're a film lover, you kind of have to see it. This is considered, I think, one of the greatest films of all time. Actually, it was the top comedy of AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs list that they put out. Um, and I think that what really strikes me is just how funny it still is when you watch it. Funny and, and also just kind of, um, you know, uh, still it, it still has edge to it. It yeah. still has an edge to it. Um, the movie at the time was made without the approval of the Hayes Code, which is sort of the, the um, what, what would you call that? Sort of the, the production code that made sure everything was sort of wholesome in Hollywood at the right, time. Yeah. And technically it was still in effect, um, and, but they made the movie anyways. Um, and, uh, but it would have gone against the Hayes Code because it plays with ideas of you know, homosexuality and cross-dressing. Um, but actually it was considered one of the final nails in the coffin of that code because no one seemed to care at that time. It was just such a funny, lovable movie. Um, it was really hard to like, not to like. I'll also add that this was one of the first 25 movies inducted into the National Film Registry. Um, oh, really? That. Um, but it's great. I mean, it's Billy Wilder. The cast is amazing. Um, this was for me, like sort of my revelation of Jack Lemmon. I, I really like hadn't seen a lot of his stuff. And mm -hmm. once I saw him in Some Like It Hot, I was like, this is why he, right. he's such a great actor. Yeah, you absolutely understand his, his place. Um, and yeah, I mean, I... I this was for me the starting point for Jack Lemmon too. And I went on to, you know, watch The Apartment and so many of his other amazing movies. Um, and uh, Marilyn Monroe is great in this too. She, she, is, she yeah. is really funny. I, I don't know what what this did for people's perception of her at the time, but I, I know I, um, I think a lot of people see this as like kind of where she became like such a legitimate actress um, and yeah. presence in films. Um, and Tony Curtis doing sort of like a Cary Grant thing too like it's just every everything uh it's it's kind of it goes for all of it and it it lands everything i think it's it's just such a great movie on repeat viewings as well yeah and we didn't we didn't uh, really give a quick synopsis of it in case you haven't seen it but really really quickly basically jack lemon and tony Curtis play jazz musicians who kind of witness uh, uh they witness a gangster uh some gangster activity and so they end up needing to get on the run and the, the only way that they can kind of hide themselves and run away is by dressing up as women and joining an all-woman's jazz group and marilyn monroe plays the ukulele player player in that jazz group and you know the uh, hilarity ensues basically yeah <laughs> yeah so if, if you haven't seen it, definitely see it. If you have seen it, rewatch it. it it's it, like Nate said, it holds up. Um, so our next category is documentary. And I'm going to be talking about the movie called Stories We Tell. And Nate's going to be talking about Beauty is Embarrassing. But first, I'll tell a little bit about Stories We Tell. This is from 2012. Um, it's directed by Sarah Polly, And uh, like it says there, she turns her camera on her family to try to understand herself better. And it's a really fascinating story uh, about how she found out that the man who raised her as her, as her father was not her biological father, though he was the father of her three siblings. Um, and then she finds out that she is actually kind of the love child of her mother and a family friend. And um, as the movie unfolds, she kind of learns more about like, how that came to be and who the man uh, got, gets to know the man a little bit better. Um, but 
at the same time, kind of behind the scenes, the movie is also about um, not just her story. Um, and it's not just her story to like air her dirty laundry or expose family secrets, but she really examines how all of us kind of construct, construct our own truths and our own stories, that our lives are just stories that we tell, uh, you know, as the title suggests. And it kind of questions whether the truth of our stories is really the sum of all of the facts of our lives or if there's something more to it. So she kind of, there's this, there's a big moment in the movie and you kind of learn to understand yourself as a person, as a movie watcher. <laughs> like she really goes for a lot in a really um, simple and very effective way. And so if you, if you really like moving and thought provoking documentaries um, and then, then, then what you want one that ends up being really surprising in ways that you never expected, Stories We Tell is absolutely uh, fantastic. In fact, we did an episode about our favorite movies of the decade, and this was one of my top movies of the decade. Um, I really, really love it. And I've watched it a few times and uh, I, I get something more out of it every time. Yeah, I second that. Stories We Tell. Man, that thing kind of upends documentary itself as well. I mean, it's really sort of, if you like documentaries, it challenges some of that as well. Even. Yeah, it does. So, um, my my documentary is uh, very lighthearted, fun. This would be a great, just sort of like easy watching Friday night documentary to watch. It's called Beauty is Embarrassing. It came out in 2012 and it really just follows um, the artist Wayne White. Uh, I had no idea who Wayne White was, um, but then when I found out, it's like he's just sort of been a part of my life and I didn't even know it. So Wayne White, he was raised in the Tennessee mountains. Um, that's sort of where he says he's from. So he's got kind of this really sort of um, interesting, you know, Southern uh, dialect uh, that he speaks in. But he has been many things, a painter, a sculptor, a cartoonist, an illustrator, a puppeteer, set designer, art director. Um, so he's had his hands in all sorts of projects and art. Um, but the way that I knew him, uh, you know, after watching this was realizing he basically designed all of Pee Wee's Playhouse and designed all the puppets. So he is Randy, if you ever watch Pee Wee's Playhouse, he's Dirty Dog. Um, he also designed, um, because he got some notoriety for his artistic design in that, he designed all of the Smashing Pumpkins music video, Tonight Tonight. He did um, Peter Gabriel's Big Time video. Um, so he's really been known to have this style that's sort of, it's always got a little bit of humor to it. Um, and, um, and it's also got a little bit of sort of an arts and crafts feature to it as well. Um, but he, in the movie, it's really just about his life and, and his story, but also about his mission, which is his mission is to bring humor into the fine art world. Um, and so you see behind in that picture, one of the things that gave him some notoriety in the fine art world is he would take uh, paintings he found of landscapes in the thrift store. These things that are just sort of recreations of uh, generic landscapes that are already framed that people would have in their living rooms. And then he would, uh, he was always inspired as a kid by like uh, giant letters, like on Wheaties boxes. And so he would just take weird pithy sayings and he would paint them within the landscapes of these thrift store paintings. Um, and these, these pieces of art, he takes basically what was, what he got at Goodwill for pennies and by adding some large letters to it, now it sells for $20,000 as a fine piece of art. To him, he thinks this is funny, but he also really likes the art and he's also really good at doing the lettering. Um, so it's this really good conversation within the movie about what is fine art? Why can't it be more funny? Why can't we, why do we have to take ourselves so seriously? And also 
uh, he sort of has this mantra and this philosophy of art being a 24 seven lifestyle. He's married to a cartoonist named Mimi Pond, uh, who was great in her own right as a comic artist. Um, and so they kind of, you go into their home and you learn how they live as artists. Um, and then he goes around in his town and wears giant paper mache heads of like Lyndon B. Johnson to just sort of get people to laugh. But then you also have to just be wowed by the art of this huge paper mache uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. So it's a really fun documentary. I can't I can't really highlight it enough. It, it, it you know, it's one of those kind of small documentaries that not a lot of people saw. So it's called Beauty is Embarrassing. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't seen that one. I, I've been meaning to, and now you really definitely sold me on it. It's fun. It's a good one. Um, our consensus pick is is fairly different from um, our two individual picks. Um, the one we went with was I'm Not Your Negro, which was directed by Raul Peck. Um, and the writing credit goes to James Baldwin because it takes the text from um, an unfinished um, book that uh, Baldwin was working on uh, at the time of his death. And um, it, it uses that as the only um, voiceover. Uh, but it also uses um, clips from Baldwin's interviews on the Dick Cavett show, um, a debate he had with um, uh, Buckley and um also edit, uh, shots from um, just kind of art throughout uh, and movies and TV throughout um, the decades to um, bring Baldwin's um, take on race, on him, on his own life, on the lives of Medgar Evers and um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and kind of recontextualize them for um, our time. And it is like everything Baldwin wrote, it is emotional. It is really hard hitting. It is very honest. It's very um, vulnerable uh, and it's really challenging, Um, but it is a tremendous work of art. Um, It was nominated for best director. It didn't end up winning the year that it it was nominated. um, That went to OJ Made in America. Um, But documentary, right? What's that? You said best director, best documentary. Best documentary. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, Yeah. Um, So Nate, what did did you think about uh, I'm Not Your Negro or do you have anything to add about that? Well, I just think this is the one that I really wanted us to have as our consensus pick because it was my exposure to Baldwin. I mean, I feel like James Baldwin was such a powerhouse in his time. Uh, And for whatever reason, I feel like now in in our generation, um, he, he was someone that if you hadn't read one of his books, you may not know a whole lot about James Baldwin. And I didn't. I didn't know much at all. This documentary really exposed me to just what a just an intellectual powerhouse this guy was and mm-hmm. such a beautiful author as well. So the, the actual words uh, from that manuscript, uh, which was called Remember This House, they're nar- narrated by Samuel L. Jackson. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you just get a real flavor of what made him uh, so important to the civil rights movement, just his words and, um, and how important they still ring true to this day. That scene of him on the Dick Cavett show where he's debating Yale professor Paul Weiss um, it, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say anything more about it other than I just, I couldn't believe how he could just off the top of his head, you know, just, just completely tear down this Yale professor, uh, who was mm-hmm. basically trying to say, why does everything have to be about race? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, Baldwin's response to that 
is just one of the most beautiful things that has stuck with me for the years since I've seen this movie. Uh, it's also available yeah. on both Hoopla and Canopy. Uh, I don't think we've been saying where, where these are at, but yeah, this is uh, one that you can get on both services. I, yeah, yeah, definitely a consensus pick in my book. And I would say the the performance by Samuel L. Jackson is one that I've never heard from him. Like it's this very quiet, gravelly kind of voice. Like yeah. even 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 just the Baldwin's words, of course, but Raul Peck's direction and the choices he makes are are really something as well. Um, so again, kind of like with I think we might say this about all our consensus picks. If you've seen if you haven't seen it, it's a must see. If you have seen it, it's it's a really good one to, to revisit as well. Yeah. Um, so we're going to move on to romance. Uh, and my pick is a French movie called Priceless. And Nate is going with uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. And so Priceless is from 2006. This is directed by um, Pierre Salvadori. Um, you might recognize Audrey uh, Totu there. She is in our consensus pick, actually, coming up, Amelie. Um, she was in A Very Long Engagement. Um, she was kind of through the early 2000s, kind of the French actress. Um, and then behind her is Gad Elmala. Um, and this is, uh, it's a really funny and kind of unusual type of romance. It's, it's sort of like if Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was a full-on romantic comedy. Um, there's an element of sort of like con artistry a little bit. Um, but what happens is Audrey Totu plays uh, a young woman who makes her living by dating rich men and uh, Richie, sometimes older men, but not always. Um, and so she dates them for a while and lives their lifestyle and then uh, moves on to someone else. And she just kind of travels around France doing this. And um, early in the movie, she mistakes Gad Elmala's character, uh, who is a waiter in the hotel. She mistakes him for a wealthy man because he fell asleep in his tuxedo and what would be more... <laughs> Uh, you know, ostentatiously wealthy than just falling asleep in the hotel bar in your tuxedo. Um, and they end up kind of flirting and uh, getting along one night. And then she finds out the next morning that he's actually a waiter and not wealthy. Uh, so obviously she's not going to date him because that's not going to make her enough money. But she does end up mentoring him in his own career, um, dating rich older women. And so they're kind of slightly conning well, older wealthy people while keeping tabs on each other and staying in touch. But then over the course of the movie, they kind of start forming a relationship together um, and looking for more like long lasting love than um, just the short bursts of relationships that they've been getting. Um, so it's just a really unique and charming blend of a lot of comedy genres, kind of the Gad Elmaleh is very much like a deadpan Jacques Tati kind of quiet comedian. Um, he's, he's very physical in the way he uh, performs and Audrey Totu is just really charming in her role as well. Um, so it's one that uh, my wife and I saw when we were dating. Um, we saw it in the theater and it's always kind of been this movie that's held a special spot for our, uh, in our hearts as well. Sounds great. Um, so my pick is The Best Years of Our Lives. This is a movie that came out in 1946. It was directed by William Wyler, who you may know as the director from movies like Roman Holiday, Ben-Hur, and Funny Girl. Um, but this is really, it's kind of a textbook golden age Hollywood production. Like Samuel Goldwyn from MGM Studios, 
he was the one that decided he wanted to make a picture about veterans returning home from World War II. So he hired a war correspondent, McKinley Cantor, to write a screenplay, and he hired his hired gun, William Wyler, uh, to direct it. Um, but this is the story, um, and I'm, I am kind of stretching a little bit with the romantic uh, aspect here, because it's really more a story about veterans returning home from war. But there are these love stories that are really compelling uh, we've woven in there. This is about three World War II veterans who return home to small town America. I believe the town is a fictional town called like Boone City or something like that. But um, one of them's name's Al, played by Frederick March. He returns uh, to his, uh, he's like an older gentleman who's returning to his job as an influential banker. Um, and it's, he's got his own struggles of kind of figuring out how to get back into that banking industry um, and, you know, reconcile his loyalties to other people from before with ex-servicemen who are, who have new banking needs. Uh, there's a veteran named Fred played by Dana Andrews, who um, is kind of just your, he just, he just is a normal sort of everyday blue collar worker who's finding it difficult to hold down jobs after he returns. And then there's Homer played by Harold Russell, who is coming home as an amputee after losing his hands in the war. And he deals with the issue of wondering if his fiance uh, and his family's feelings towards him are still coming from a place of love or if they're coming from more of a place of pity. Um, you've got a great uh, cast of women in this as well. Myrna Loy plays Millie, who is Al's uh, wife. Uh, Virginia Mayo plays Fred's uh, you know, new, new wife. And then Kathy O'Donnell, who's pictured there with uh, Harold Russell as Homer, plays Wilma. And, um, you know, so what you have here is actually kind of three different love stories, but the most compelling one is the one that you see pictured here between Homer, who's the amputee, um, and Wilma. Um, you know, he just cannot accept the love that she has for him. Um, he has uh, come home, he's got um, sort of a hook prosthesis. Um, and this is all, um, you know, this isn't, uh, he, he was an actual amputee in real life. Um, so he's a non-actor, Harold Russell playing this part, and he does a wonderful job here. Um, and it's a really beautiful love story that you see in this movie through it. You have cinematography here, cinematography being, you know, who's kind of behind the camera by Greg Toland, who did Citizen Kane. And what he was kind of known for were these really signature, they're called deep focus shots, where the background and the foreground are both in focus. Um, and so you get these really great shots in this movie where, you know, the camera doesn't move around a lot, but there's just a lot to look at. There's stuff happening in the background just as much as there's stuff happening in the foreground. And I would say, you know, this is just a it's, a, it's one of those movies that it's an important film, but it doesn't feel self-important. Um, it doesn't kind of congratulate itself for being made. Um, this was made before PTSD even was given a name, but I think it really bluntly portrays those difficulties of returning to civilian life after war. Uh, and not just those difficulties for the actual servicemen, but the difficulties to their families and their communities as well. Um, Harold Russell uh, the one who's pictured there, he actually won both a supporting actor award for the Academy Awards, but also an honorary Oscar. The honorary Oscar being because they wanted to give it to him because he gave hope to veterans um, and they didn't think he would actually win the real award. And then he actually did win the real award. So he's the only actor who has ever won two Academy Awards for the exact same role. 
Um, and he's not even a professional actor. So, so there's that. But this, this ended up winning like eight Academy Awards. It was one of those first movies that kind of swept the Oscars. And it also was one of those first 25 movies to be inducted into the National Film Registry. I feel like it's underseen, though. I don't feel like a lot of people have seen this. Um, it's available on uh, Canopy. Um, and I feel like MGM hasn't even really done a lot to do a lot of special releases or anything. So you just kind of catch it when you can. And I really don't think you should miss this one. Yeah, that's one. I, I, I Honestly, the name doesn't even stand out to me. I know yeah. that I've heard of it, but I wouldn't have been able to place it at all. So um, that's another one. That's you're, you're, you've got two in a row there that I've got to add to my list. personally. <laughs> Um, and so our uh, our consensus pick, we're going back to France and back to Audrey Tautou um, with uh, the movie Amelie uh, from the from early 2000s. Um, and this one uh, is a romance in a lot of different ways. I kind of feel like it just injects romance into your life um, when you when you watch it, you kind of and that's part of the plot too, is that Amelie, the main character, just has this really infectious sort of love of life and love for all people. Um, and so uh, it's directed by Jean-Pierre Genet, who is a very inventive director. He He's done um, City of Lost Children, A Very Long Engagement. Um, I know I'm, I'm blanking on some of Delicatessen, um, but he's always got... Uh, unique sets and unique camera work and unique stories. Um, um, but uh, what were your thoughts on this one, Nate? Well, I think you're right. This is like, this is a romantic movie, like romantic in like the philosophical sense, you know, mm -hmm. but there is a romance in here as well, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, basically, um, Tatal plays Amelie and, and she kind of just decides uh, to devote her life to bringing happiness to others. So that in itself is just a really warm, feel good kind of thing. And she comes up with these really sort of complex schemes to do this. Mm -hmm. um, but then she ends up actually falling in love herself. Um, and I, I don't know, what was the company that came up that was using that the traveling gnome as its kind of thing? Oh, that's right. It was, oh, it was like was a travel that? company. Was it Travelocity? Yeah, velocity. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks. So. You know, if you didn't know that, that actually came from Amelie because there's a part in there where she sort of, you know, has this gnome travel around and have pictures taken from all around. Um, so it's got that, like you said, that really char that charm, that whimsy. It's just such a, mm -hmm. you know, light, fun movie to watch. It also has this amazing score by Jan Tiersen, um, yeah. one of my favorite film scores of all time, and I just love putting it on. You know, just any day I can put that on and it puts me in a good mood. So, it, yeah. yeah, and it feels so French too. The it movie. does, it's a very French. And that's the other thing too, is if Paris. Paris is a character in this movie mm -hmm. and it's not really realistic. It's more of a, it's it's like a romanticized depiction of contemporary Paris. Yeah. You know, it's really, it's, it's such a great movie. Well, it's interesting that realism is not what this movie's going for. Like you said, Amelie's plans can be really complex and they count on a lot of stuff going right that like would never happen. But it it is also rooted in really simple joys. Like yeah. the, one of the most classic scenes is just or, like, it's a quick moment, but Amelie enjoying cracking the top of a creme brulee. Like yeah. even for all its whimsy and complexity, it also just invites you to remember how great the little things are. Yeah. Um, and it how, is really a celebration of life in that yeah. way. It's a very life affirming movie. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah. That's available on Hoopla, uh, by the yeah, way. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, all right, <laughs> big shift. <laughs> You're gonna go here. <laughs> romance to horror and thriller, and um, I, I'm starting off by talking about a movie called Time Crimes, and Nate's gonna go back to the '70s to talk about Ganja and Hess. Um, Time Crimes is a Spanish movie. It's from 2007. It's directed by Nacho Vigalondo, um, and it stars uh, Cara Elahade as Hector, um, and I chose this movie. It's not the greatest movie, um, but it's a movie that at the end of it, I just wanted to talk to people about. I yeah. thought it was really fun. Um, it's, it's not, it's creepy. It's thrillery. Um, but it's, uh, it's kind of this fast paced time travel thriller. Um, and it's got a sense of humor. Um, but at the same time, the director who also stars, uh, co-stars in the movie, uh, really cranks up the tension as, as it goes. Um, and the basic plot is Hector um, sees something kind of strange happening in the woods. So he goes to check it out and he finds himself being kind of stalked or chased by this really creepy bandaged man. He looks very much, he was on that poster. He looks very stereotypically horror movie. Um, and in his escape, he runs into this building nearby and ends up accidentally going back in time and out, or well, he not actually, he goes back in time and hour to save himself from this person. Um, then from there, like the tension kind of starts cranking up. So it's got some B movie qualities in a really good way. It knows how to tell a really kind of strange story and it doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, it's got, it's, it's time travel isn't Christopher Nolan levels of like, you have to sit down with a, a, a binder and really write out what's happening. Basically he goes back an hour and you start to, and, and it makes sense from there. Um, but uh, again, it was just one that I really wanted to talk about. It's twisty, um, but it's not something that you have to pay such close attention to. It's just another kind of fun, like you said, or about a couple of these Friday night movie. Um, if you want a good amount of su suspense and a compelling story that isn't too complex or high on itself, this is definitely uh, a movie to check out. Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. So I'm going to have to add that one to my list. It sounds yeah. really fun to talk about. So, <laughs> um, all right. So I'm going to switch over gears a little bit to a movie called Ganja and Hess. Uh, it's from 1973. And I would say this is a horror movie. Like I, I don't know that if you're not into horror, I don't know that I would necessarily recommend it, but if you are into horror, I feel like it's a must see. You have to see it. Um, this is written and directed by Bill Gunn, uh, who uh, was sort of an actor and playwright at the time, uh, had a little bit of notoriety. Uh, it stars uh, Marlene Clark and Dwayne Jones. Um, and basically Bill Gunn was asked by a studio to make a black exploitation vampire movie, kind of like in the vein of Blackula. Um, black exploitation being sort of those movies, most of them like from the 70s, they're a little bit lower budget, but there were movies that um, were like uh, starred and um, were made by, um, you know, the uh, black filmmakers and black actors and actresses. Uh, oftentimes they didn't have the budgets that most other movies had, so they tend to be pretty low budget. 
And usually they were more sort of um, mainstream or just entertaining kind of fair. Well, Bill Gunn, you know, being the actor and playwright that he is, decided to make a complete art film out of this. Um, so this I kind of have here in my, my quote, this is basically like a vampire fever dream. Um, <laughs> it's not what the studio wanted, but instead what you get is this really one of a kind surreal dive. Uh, basically it's about uh, this character, Dr. Hess Green. He's an anthropologist. Um, and he is stabbed by his assistant with a dagger from an ancient African civilization. Um, the assistant who stabs him uh, eventually kills himself. And Dr. Green uh, realizes that he's been turned into a vampire by this dagger and proceeds to drink the assistant's blood. Um, now then Dr. Green, who is now a vampire, falls in love with that assistant's girlfriend. That's the uh, Marlene Clark character. Um, and, uh, her name is Ganja. Her name is Ganja, correct. Um, and she was the, yeah, she's the assistant's girlfriend uh, who's looking for her missing boyfriend, basically. So she soon learns about Dr. Uh, Green's secret. They fall in love uh, and he ends up making her a vampire too. <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say, because from there on, it just gets kind of, eh, you know, weird in a good way, weird in a good way, it's but it just gets more. What's that? Very 70s. Very 70s. Yeah. If you like 70s cinema, this is also a great pick. Um, but Gunn is really trying to use vampirism as a metaphor, uh, a metaphor for things like addiction. He touches on organized religion, feminism, uh, the idea of black assimilation and white imperialism. It's all wrapped up in this idea of vampires. Um, which makes it really, really fascinating and really fascinating to kind of study and think about. Um, but it's also just entertaining as a vampire movie. If you like that kind of thing, it mm. delivers. It delivers as a vampire movie as well. Uh, it does have a low budget feel, kind of like what Ryan was saying about time crimes. This was made on a $350,000 budget. So you got to get used to kind of the grainy film quality. The audio quality isn't always great. But the story is great. The ideas are great. The acting is good, uh, really good for being a low budget movie. Um, it was really so influential that uh, Spike Lee actually remade this as a movie called The Sweet Blood of Jesus in 2014. But I would just stick with Ganja and Hess. Even though I love Spike Lee, um, I would just stick with the original. It really is. Uh, it, it can't be beat. Um, so Ganja and Hess, this is available on Canopy. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in on this one, too. I, I watched Ganja and Hess uh, this year um, at Nate's recommendation. And <laughs> it's it's really great. And not just I mean, if you if you are also just like a film lover, there is this is a really, I would say, important movie in film history because the filmmaking by Bill Gunn is very, very good. And that is part of why it failed as a black exploitation movie, because people watched black exploitation movies to watch something that was so bad. You could maybe be laughing at it and, you know, but Ganja and Hess doesn't invite you to laugh at it at any point because it's a very, very well-made, well-thought-out movie. And I think it was released into like two theaters for a weekend or something. Um, and then they kept trying to release it five or six different names. Uh, yeah. They re-edited it all these times, but now we finally have the full original movie um, and it's available on Canopy. So uh, this is this is the kind of thing that for decades, film lovers wished they could have seen. Um, so I, I just, I know it's not our consensus pick, but I really, I really uh, think this is a great movie too. Yeah. Um, our consensus pick is a lot more conventional. <laughs> 
so this is Halloween from 1978. Um, and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, really her breakout role. Um, and Nate and I actually watched this movie for an episode of our podcast a couple of years ago. We watch horror movies at Halloween. And so we did this one and uh, we both thought like it really holds up. Uh, you know, it's, it is almost, it's, if it's, it's one of the movies that set the template for what the kind of slow moving monster slasher uh, movie, you know, if you've seen other ones that came after it, some of the stuff that happens in Halloween is going to be predictable, but somehow the score, the performances, uh, it, it still is able to, to be effectively scary. And this is a debut, film debut of Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. Uh, so this is the first time we see her on the screen. And of course, you know, a lot of us probably know that iconic score, the, you know, it's kind of like the horror movie score right. uh, from Halloween, the, you know, I'm, do I need to hum it? I don't <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of high pitched. So if you don't want to, <laughs> I won't use my falsetto, but anyways, that was actually composed and performed by John Carpenter, uh, mm -hmm. who is the director of this movie and also co-wrote it with Deborah Hill. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's another one that's just, it does so much with its low budget. This, uh, this only had a budget of $300,000. Uh, and so, I mean, just the, the scares it's able to pull, uh, with just the little tricks it uses that are mostly just cinematic tricks, you know, tricks in, um, you know, pacing towards suspense, tricks in cutting of the camera, you know, um, it, it's, it's impressive in a lot of ways. And it really did, like you said, Ryan, it kicked off the slasher genre as we know it today. I mean, basically it was taking its inspiration from, you know, Hitchcock's Psycho, but the whole idea of us having slasher movies kind of starts with Halloween. Um, mm -hmm. And for that reason, it's also in the National Film Registry, <laughs> culturally significant. Uh, this is also, this is, this uh, movie is available on Hoopla right now. Yeah. Um, all right, so we'll move on to our next uh category drama our last category our is last category yeah um, i'm going to be talking about the virgin suicides and nate's going to be talking about daughters of the dust so why don't you tell us about daughters of the dust yeah you know this is um kind of like you were saying with ganja and hess this is another movie that people um for a long time wished they could find after the fact and had a hard time until just recently now when it's kind of had a resurgence and it is available now on Canopy. This is a film from 1991, written and directed by Julie Dash. This is the first feature film, if you can believe it, directed by an African-American woman that's been distributed theatrically in the United States. It's a sad fact, but for that reason, it is a really significant movie. And it would be one thing if it was a so-so movie, but instead what you have is a gorgeous movie that's amazing. Um, this is um, set in 1902, so it's kind of a historical piece. Um, it's a languid sort of poetic look at three generations of Gullah women um, as the family that they are a part of is preparing to migrate off of their island and into the North, part of the Great Migration. Um, Dash was inspired by her own father's Gullah family who also migrated to New York City in the early 20th century. So if you're like me before this, I didn't know hardly anything about Gullah culture, the Gullah people, and this is American history, this is American culture. Um, but the Gullah or Geechee, uh, is, as they're sometimes referred to, are basically African-Americans who live in the low country region in the US. This would be like the coastal plains and sea islands of Georgia, Florida, South Carolina. Um, but because historically of their relative isolation from whites in the more rural plantations, the Gullah developed their own unique Creole language uh, and distinct culture with more of an African influence. 
Um, and Daughters of the Dust is completely uh, and totally enveloped in this Gullah culture the entire time. The, um, the, even all the language in the movie is spoken within the Gullah dialect. It was filmed on St. Helena Island in South Carolina. This is just one of those, like if you love just beautiful movies, just movies that look amazing, huge landscapes, kind of like, you know, movies that are just romantic in that way, where they're just like sweeping uh, landscapes. You can't do better than Daughters of the Dust. The narrative is kind of, uh, it, 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 it's more like poetry. She took a lot of inspiration from writers like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker uh, with the way that she sort of set up the film. And um, this film really had another resurgence more recently when Beyonce for her visual album, Lemonade, um, she kind of brought renewed attention to Daughters of the Dust because that, if you, if you watch the film Lemonade that came with the album, Beyonce's album, she has several direct visual references to Daughters of the Dust. Um, and they're some of the most gorgeous pieces in that movie as well. Um, it's, it's a really great movie. It, it, it's, I, I like it because it's a culture that we rarely talk about or see uh, portrayed in film, but it's also just this sort of meditation, as I say here, on the uh, timeless tension between tradition and progress, because this family is really wrestling with, they kind of need to move to the North, but they know that they're going to be losing some of that culture and that tradition. And how do you respect your ancestors when you have to make a decision like that? Um, and it's a really great drama uh, for that reason. And once again, selected uh, to the Library of Congress National Registry of Film in 2004. <laughs> and this is available, if I didn't mention it already, on Canopy. Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, my movie is uh, The Virgin Suicides. It's uh, directed by Sofia Coppola. Um, it was her directorial debut. And I think kind of the last thing people had heard of Sofia Coppola was um, her not great performance in Godfather 3. Um, and then she shows up directing The Virgin Suicides and the jokes stopped at that point. Like her talent was very apparent. Um, and it is a really honest and insightful look at the inner life of a teenage girl um, through the eyes of teenage boys, kind of like figuring out the mystery of five sisters who commit suicide. Um, so it's a very heavy topic, um, but Coppola is able to make it not this heavy, heavy movie. Um, she really allows the girls um, like joys to come through their frustrations. Also just the mundanity of being a teenager. I think that it can be easy to forget that being a teenager is really boring sometimes, especially when you're not in control of your own life. And so for teenage, for five teenage girls in the 1970s, that's the story that um, Sofia Coppola is telling. Um, the performances are incredible. Kirsten Dunst, uh, James Woods, Kathleen Turner. Um, Dunst and Kathleen Turner especially are great. Um, you've got um, Giovanni Ribisi does the voiceover, which is really setting the mood. And visually, I think that Virgin Suicide is kind of the precursor to all the visual uh, like Instagram filters and everything. I think Sofia Coppola was way ahead mm -hmm. of the curve with that sort of thing. Um, but it's a movie that really um, takes its time to think about um, what it's like to be a teenager in a way that is really respectful to that age. Um, 
And as a high school teacher, that feels very important to me that, that people kind of remember that high schoolers for all their quirks and as irritating as they can be sometimes, there's a lot going on there. Um, and uh, I think Sofia Coppola really can capture that well. Um, and, uh, and this movie just really holds up for me as well on, on repeat viewings. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in on this one as well, uh, even though it's not our consensus. And um, you know, we did a episode of another Sofia Coppola movie, Marie Antoinette, that we loved as well. And I think it's just, we, we kind of talked about it as like the cool factor. There's something so cool about Sofia Coppola's directing that you just, you just, you, 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 I don't know how to explain it. You just feel cool watching it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like, yeah, but also this one features, um, uh, I talk about scores a lot, but this features a score by a French uh, duo uh, pop group called Air, and it just is so pitch perfect for this movie. It really highlights what's already an amazing film. Yeah, I can't believe I forgot to talk about the soundtrack because it's in my notes to talk about it. But not just the original score by Air, but she uses songs from the 70s just mm, yes. incredibly. Um, and it's a real, uh, yeah... It's 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 a it's it's a very it's a strangely fun movie at times, even though its subject matter is is not fun. And uh, like she handles those differences in tone tremendously well. Um, and so our consensus pick is uh, a, a best uh, best picture winner from a, a couple of years ago, famously a confusing night for, at the Oscars, but uh, Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins. Um, and this is another one, uh, like uh, Stories We Tell, that was one of my favorite movies of the last decade. Mine too. Um, yeah. And it tells the story of uh, a black boy who becomes a black teenager, who becomes a black man, um, as he is dealing with being uh, raised in, in poverty, but also being a gay um a gay man um, throughout his life and how that affects him as a boy, how it affects him as a teenager, how it affects him as an adult. Um, and uh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Um, uh, Barry Jenkins knows how to film the, the colors and the lights uh, of Miami beautifully. There's a, a, again, a score by Nicholas Bertel that is now iconic. I'm sure if you haven't seen this uh, and you watch it, you'll recognize the music from the movie. Um, it's used all over the place now. Um, and it's just full of amazing performances. Mahershala Ali, this was kind of his breakout movie um, and he won the Oscar for it. Um, but uh, it was a movie I, I saw it and loved it immediately and was hesitant in rewatching it just because I, I had loved it the first time so much. And the second time it was as, as powerful and as beautiful as I remembered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to add to that, that it was the same for me. I, I watched this a second time. We watched it in preparation. We did an episode on our favorite films, of the decade that Ryan already alluded to. And I think for both of us, this was like right near the top of the best movies of the decade, the last decade that is. Um, it's, it's just, as you said, it's, it's gorgeous. You know, the Mahershala Ali in here, he kind of plays uh, a father figure to, to little Chiron, um, who's the little boy that you see pictured in the picture there. Um, and there's just that scene, uh, he's teaching him how to swim. And that's where that score comes in that is now iconic, but it's iconic because of that scene. That scene has to be one of the scenes of the decade, if not one of the most powerful scenes, maybe in cinematic history. I know that's hyperbole, but still, I just, there is something about that scene that I, you can't watch it and not get chills, I don't think. Um, yeah. 
it just everything comes together in it so well. And, and, but, you know, the entire movie is just gorgeous. And it's it, it's it's one of those movies that I think I watch and I just learn every time how much everybody is deserving of love. Um, yeah, it's yeah. such a movie about uh, you, there's an ache. There is an ache mm-hmm. to this movie. That's why we have it in that drama category, I think. Um, but it's in, in that way, it is such an important film, or at least it was for me, for yeah. just a reminder of how much everybody deserves love in this life, you know? Yeah, because there are characters in this movie. Mahershala Ali plays a drug dealer and Sharon's mom is a drug addict. And um, uh, Janelle Monet plays um, Mahershala Ali's girlfriend. And there, there are many places where those have been stock characters. And... Um, Moonlight takes its time to get to know and understand those characters um, and also not let Mahershala Ali's drug dealing character off the hook or um, Naomi Wood's uh, mother character off the hook for her, her parenting. But there's also a humanity imbued in every character in this movie that is um, just remarkable that um, they're able to, to pull off. Unfortunately, I feel like it, it, if you haven't seen it, it just gets mostly known as that weird dust up at the Oscars where everyone thought La La Land won and Moonlight was the one that actually won. And I think what got lost in that whole story was how deserving Moonlight was of that best picture and also just how important of a movie that was um, in so many ways. And mm-hmm. also that night even, like that night, Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor. He's the first Muslim ever to win a, a, a Best Acting award um and joy mcmillan didn't win but she was the first black woman to ever be nominated for a best editing oscar and this is one of those movies where you could look at everything acting score cinematography editing directing everything is just pitch perfect and just absolutely immaculate in this movie Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean given time that could move up to one of my favorite movies of all time yeah i could see it doing that so that's it for our list. That's all our categories. We're about at eight o'clock. Are there questions? I know there were some questions about like that Molly was able to answer in the chat, but are there questions about any movies that we've talked about? Or do you have movies? Have you have you been perusing Canopy and Hoopla and you've got some to suggest to anybody? Yeah, and while we're waiting for that, I just want to mention that with Hoopla and Canopy, it's important to know that what we recommend tonight, you'll want to watch quickly because in those services, sometimes things expire and what is available today may not be available a month from now. Just wanted to kind of give that disclaimer. It's a good point. 